Hi there, and welcome to the Interiors Podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Neufeld Flanagan, expat and interior designer based in Dublin, Ireland. This show is all about informing and inspiring you, homeowners and renters in Ireland, on all things around property, housing, and home, from self-building to choosing flooring. In each episode, we interview industry experts and homeowners to give you practical advice and the motivation to create and elevate your spaces. Welcome back to the Interiors Podcast. We're kicking off with the first episode of Season 2. It is early 2023, and I have with me Jenny Butler of Jennifer and Interiors. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Tanya. I'm so excited. Thank you. Me too. So we're going to talk about today from an industry side. Jenny is obviously an interior designer, but we're going to learn about a lot of the principles she talks about in practice with a home renovation. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds since we tend to interview either an industry expert or a renovator. Um, But before we dive into all that, before you started your firm, you worked somewhere for a very long time, and that taught you a lot about the commercial design world, which we're going to talk a bit about. Tell us a bit more about your career and where it all started. So basically, my I would like to say probably my career started when I was 11, and I know that sounds really bizarre, <laughs> um, but the reason I say this is because my parents were always really um, passionate about um, period homes and design, and my parents purchased a um, Victorian home, maybe it's Edwardian now, and um, it was built in 1904, so I think that would make it Edwardian actually, and it needed to be completely gutted, and I was just so amazed by everything and I remember every single day throughout the whole renovation process my mom would pick me up from school and the first thing we do is go do a site visit mm-hmm. and that wasn't out her asking me that was me asking her and we would walk the whole property and I would like talk about ideas and suggest things to her and I just absolutely loved it and it's so funny because my sister was five years older and I think she didn't see the house and then when my parents purchased it to almost we moved in and my mom used to laugh to her friends and be like you know one daughter is just so um just so enthusiastic about the whole process and I remember just really being like this is what I want to do how does one even get into this profession wow. and, then, and then I had this moment when I was about 16 kind of going I absolutely love this. And then someone had said, you know, don't do your hobby because your hobby will, if you if you pursue your hobby as your career, it'll destroy it for you. So I kind of got a bit nervous about it and then thought, should I do something more sensible when I left school? <laughs> but I went into Griffith College to study interior architecture, which if anyone went to Griffith College will tell you, it, they work you so unbelievably hard, but they prepare you so much. You really feel like you get a fantastic education there and um, I really wanted to get into interior architecture and interior design and I'd heard they had fantastic programs for teaching you all the various different softwares and I'm not a very tech savvy person so I really needed that. (laughs) What would be the differentiator in how they train you if you're going to do the interior architect route versus design? What are the kind of credential differences there? So in Griffith College, you can do three years where you would graduate with um, a degree in interior design. And if you do four years, you degree, you four years, sorry, you graduate with a BA honors degree in interior architecture. And it's basically just more constructional based. So you learn a lot more about the, 
So it's taking a building at its shell and taking that completely from conception to completion. Interior design does give you a huge grounding for that as well, but it's really just an extra year for them to really hone in on that and give you that focus and give you more um, teaching in the softwares as well. So you learn everything from AutoCAD to SketchUp to Photoshop, InDesign, 3ds Max. And so it's, it, you know, they, they really, really pack a lot in those four years, so which is really incredible, actually. Mm, and that would prepare you quite well for going into the interior design, interior design arm of an architecture practice. Which, yeah, absolutely. Um, I deviated you from your career story. So you didn't, you were told, <laughs> you were told not to pursue your hobby, but you ignored <laughs> that person. Well, you went into. I, I, I... Yeah, like I studied art foundation for a year, actually, when I finished school, because I knew I wanted to do something related to art. Um, I was um, a devil that, you know, when I was meant to be studying in school, I'd just be sketching in my notebook the whole time. So I think I knew it had to be something related to design and art. But I was kind of thinking, OK, if I study art foundation for a year, it's not really wasting time. I'm actually just going to be developing my skills and I can kind of f- use that year to really find what I want to do. And um, I think at the end of it, I came out of it and just went, no, I can't do anything else. I'd just be absolutely awful at anything else (laughs) in this. And uh, so I went in to do that. And it was one of the some of the hardest, but the best years of my life. And I I met along. um, I went one of my best friends there on the first day of college as well. And we both actually ended up working in Henry J. Lines and sitting next to each other for five plus (laughs) years. Such an amazing experience. And as, as I said, when I left, I applied for my job in Henry J. Lyons. I came out of the interview just feeling really good about it. I interviewed with one of your previous interviews, uh, Stephanie O'Sullivan and, uh, and my director. And I just left and was just kind of going, this is where I want to be, manifest, manifest, <laughs> this is where I want to be. And why did you apply only there? I don't know why. It's, it's I remember being in college and you know, Tudor is telling me you're going to have to move to Dubai. There's just no work in Ireland. You know, because it's Australia. recession time, right? It's recession time. There's yeah. just no work out there, and you're kind of going, okay, only in year two, maybe in another couple of years. You know, we'll just hang on, and things will kind of start to turn around in Ireland. And this was about kind of 2013, and then you know, I kind of thought, okay, I should probably be doing some internships now in my in my summer break. So. In 2013, I did an internship for a firm called Cantor and Crowley Architects, and I was the assisting their lead designer, um, a lovely, lovely woman called Deirdre Walsh, and she was doing the fit out of the Shelburne Hotel. And that was a fantastic learning experience because I was basically based on site there for the summer and they were, you know, doing each room in phases. And then I would kind of got an idea about how to do snagging, actually dressing rooms and all that kind of side of it. So you'd be on your hands and knees, you know, at 11 p.m. at night with your old kind of, you know, out of date credit cards, you know, scratching the top of electrical face plates to get little bits of paint off. And but it gives you um, a huge understanding to what, you know, when you're in college, you know, it's it's a fantastic learning experience. But there's a lot to be said for actually being in a practice in the thick of it as well. And yeah. gaining all of their knowledge as much and just basically becoming this sponge and trying to absorb as much as possible. And there was a company that were um Cantor and Curly were working with that were supplying all the furniture and they were also had um contractors. And when I finished college, very funnily enough, you know, timing and luck has a huge role to play because the day after I finished my degree, I got on a plane 
uh, to go see my family. And as I was sitting and buttling up my seatbelt, the woman that I um, worked with, Cantor and Curly Architects, that owned this company, walks past me and says hello. And I haven't seen her at that point in maybe two years. And she just goes, we'll talk. I'll see you over there. And so I met her for a coffee um, down in Portugal. And she said they were doing this big hotel um, project, um, which was the, the K Club. And they were doing it, sitting at a new wing there. And she asked, would I basically come on board for the summer and um, again, be down on site and just essentially assist with the fit out, uh, which is what I did, which was, again, another fantastic learning experience. So when I I finished that, I was kind of going, "Okay, what do I do next? And all that kind of thing. And I just remember being caught and going, MJ Lyons sounds like the place to be. You know, they're starting to kind of, hire people you know they seem like they're doing really really cool projects out there and something for whatever reason I was just like I think that's where I need to be that that that's the place that's where stuff is happening and I applied for a job there and was interviewed by the um, MD at that time and then I was called back in for a second interview with the director of the interiors department and with one of their leading designers Stephanie O'Sullivan and we, it seemed to go on, uh, go very well anyway, to my recollection. <laughs> and uh, then they, they gave me a tour of the building and I was really, really impressed by the building. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, it's just so massive. And you're just so intimidated by all the work that's going on in there. But it was so exciting as well. And I was gradu- had my college graduation um, a week later and the day of my college graduation, I got my job offer. Um, so it was such a such a lovely day for so many reasons. And but, how wonderful uh, that you then go on to stay there for seven years. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I really, really loved my 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 time there. And I always said I'll never leave unless they make me leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I never had any interest in going to any other commercial practice. The I loved the team that I worked on. I loved the people I was working under. And um, everyone was just so nice. And I I never had any intention of actually leaving at all to be um for the foreseeable future. My my heart always lied with residential design. But I always was kind of wondering, how would I get into that? And if I was going to do it, I knew it was never going to be for another practice. I knew it was going to be for myself. It was just a matter of when that was going to be happening. So, you know, five years, whatever rolls on. And all of a sudden, there's this big, you know, pandemic that hits Ireland. And everyone is sent home. And everyone's getting a taste of what it's like to be, you know, working at the kitchen table with the laptop and a stack of books and um, creating this new work-life balance. Um, and kind of as that um, rolled on, we were also trying to buy our first home. And it was a bit tricky because we had got our mortgage approval the week that the pandemic hit Ireland. And we had gotten it for X amount and we were so excited. And then sure, the pubs closed down two days later. <laughs> yeah. But wait a second. Before we jump into your house project, I want to dive a little bit more into those, what, six, seven years of experience at Henry J. Lyons. And I think for a lot of people listening, they, you know, for you, oh yeah, commercial and residential, that's so clear and distinct. But for the average person, um, they don't know what goes into the fit out of a hotel versus the fit out of, you know, a student accommodation or a restaurant and how that differs from a home. So could you tell us a little bit more about the principles that you learned in those years at Henry J. Lyons? in commercial and how how it's different from residential. 
It's vastly different, I would say. Um, people people think there is big crossover, but in my experience, the the biggest crossovers for me were just you know learning um, learning about spaces, how much circulation space you actually mm. need. Um, you know, learning things about joinery. I I remember sitting down with one of the associates one day, and I was um, a junior on the project, and I just sat down with her and said, "Can you please teach me everything about joinery?" I really want to learn how to, to create joinery packages and everything that's involved with that. I think that's hugely important for our job. I mean, every time we did a fit out, we'd always have 15 to 30 pieces of joinery. So having an understanding about how all that works was hugely important. And she was absolutely wonderful um, to me. She went through everything and she basically kind of gave me, she really simplified it and just said, let's just start sketching it up each piece of how we visually wanted to work and how we wanted to look. And then we'll get into the nitty gritty of the 2D drawings of how we're actually going to get from A to B. And if you ever find sometimes someone's, you know, your partner or your mom or your dad could say something to you a million times over, but then someone completely separate says things and whatever way they say things in the plainest English, you just kind of go, oh, that makes sense. Okay, let's do it that way. And suddenly it's not so overwhelming. And so she was um, fantastic. And obviously up, up until this point, I had been assisting um, Stephanie on a hotel project as well and was just trying to absorb as much knowledge from her as I possibly could. And watching her in action, how she interacted, you know, with the builders and in team meetings and just them, you know, thinking on her feet as well as a lot of planning and coordinating going on in the background. And that was such a huge learning experience. And especially because actually she went on maternity leave while we were there. So then another um, associate stepped in and we were actually now moving on from almost the hotel part of the project to the snagging of all of the rooms. So I was there kind of thinking, right, this is grand. I know what I'm doing here because I've already been on two hotel projects and snagging. Yeah. So, and, you know, when you're working on a hotel, you have 100 plus rooms and it's very easy to kind of go into each one and go, this looks perfect, grand, next one. And you're not, sometimes you might not actually know what you're necessarily looking for. And even the terminology that's involved and you're making out lists and then, you know, you're sending on stuff to the contractor, trying taking photo evidence of everything. And we then started fitting out this sports bar in the basement as well. So the relationship was already there with the client, but it was a completely new thing that we were doing that was unrelated to the previous it was a completely separate exercise and um, so I worked on that then for a few months and then after that I started assisting in an office fit out project which I'd never had any experience in before and that's where I started to really get into the joinery and learn how to do mm. that which was hugely important I, I think joinery is such a huge part of what we do and why because I re you, it just creates a much, much better design. People, especially in homes, get really, really nervous about joinery and they just see a huge price tag involved with it and they don't actually realize that the long-term, aesthetically, it makes your home, I think, look really, really beautiful. But from a storage perspective as well, no off-the-shelf piece of furniture is ever going to replicate that for you. You know, when you create a piece of joinery, you're creating it completely bespoke for that space and making it work to the best of its ability and making it work really, really hard and creating depth in your space as well. You know, if everything is just completely off the shelf, it, 
I don't think it looks as considered, in my opinion. I think it's lovely to have a combination of the two. And yeah. I think you can really make the space work as hard as possible by doing that. I agree. And a lot of times, if you're doing really well done joinery, it doesn't even look like the room's been reduced in size. You, it just makes it feel like the room was always that size. If you've done a whole wall, yeah, you, you take an awkward corner and mm. kind of conceal it behind doors. Whereas if you're just getting things off the shelf or kind of in standard sizes, even if it's you know fitted from Ikea, there's these weird gaps and you can see where it protrudes from the wall. Mm. Um, so I think that is a huge way because it also creates like way less visual clutter. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also something to remember that, you know, people again, see the huge price tag with joinery. But I mean, I, we did not have a huge price tag when we were buying our first homes, like many other people in Ireland. So it was trying to create clever ways to bring down the cost there as well. And I definitely truly believe that if I didn't have my background in commercial where, you know, you do a lot of value engineering on projects Mm. and, because as well with inflation of the past couple of years, you know, we had to do so much value engineering. The cost of materials was just skyrocketing and you couldn't tell. You could give a price on a Monday and the price could have completely changed by the Wednesday. So when we were doing various different elements of our home, we were kind of going, okay, the kitchen is one area we don't really want to compromise with the finishes. But, you know, in our study area or in the utility space, you know, maybe we could use a type of melamine here or a type of MDF, which for people that don't know is basically the cheapest form of woodwork essentially you can get. Mm -hmm. And instead of getting it factory sprayed, let's take a stab of it and paint it ourselves. (laughs) Not something I would recommend to listeners generally Um, having having a background with your first job of working in snagging and then painting yourself you get a whole new appreciation for painting <laughs> decorators yeah my god you can it, it they make it look so easy but they it's do, not they do yeah. I, you get yeah I I mean I I the I think when especially when you're painting I mean we completely sealed the plaster work on our house we painted every single thing ourselves and I mean Painting is one sure way you can test a relationship. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think if we were to ever move again, I I love that I have the experience and knowing and understanding those basics and how to actually do up a home and do some DIY because I think that's kind of part of being a responsible homeowner is just understanding those. But I don't know if I would ever do all of that paint work on another (laughs) home again. Yeah, to the extent well, that's a good learning. <laughs> and it is, um, it is. I want to go back to something you you were saying there about the value engineering. So would that be basically just going back on the designs and seeing how you could tweak things to be in different materials or simplify a design to to make it conform to a specific budget? Yes, exactly. So it, it okay. could be a huge vast of things. It could be things like. You know, you might have a kitchenette where you have a stone countertop and you change that to a formica or you have a tile backsplash and now you're maybe changing that to either, you know, a glass or just a vinyl or something or a formica. And then it could be, you know, as much as taking out any a piece of joinery and trying to replace it with something that's off the shelf. It could be changing out uh, floor types to something that's more cost effective that gives you a similar look and feel. Or you might have to completely actually change a ceiling design altogether. So it depends on the value engineering that actually needs to be done. And then also working with the other teams involved. So, you know, if you have 
engineers and you have to have a various amount of ductwork and pipework and everything and you've created this ceiling design to you know either conceal that or highlight it in a in a way that looks considered there is a lot of other factors to take into consideration and you also have to make sure that the client is happy with it at the end yeah. of the day and it's you know they still feel like they're getting what they paid for to an extent you mm-hmm. know, if you're completely scrapping if you've sold them on a design and all of a sudden you're completely scrapping various elements of it the design necessarily might not even work anymore because yeah, it might have to be revised. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so there's a lot of other elements that go on in the background that, you know, some people might think, Oh, well, that's just very simple change in change out. And you might go, well, actually, you know, we did this for this reason, because this is going to link in with that. And there's a lot of, there's a bigger domino effect here. At play. Yeah. A lot of other elements that we need to consider because all those are marrying well, together and every designer architect will tell you down to the fine detail like it's all being considered for a specific reason you know mm-hmm. nothing is or just because so yeah you re- you're you're really trying to like illustrate that to the client that yeah we could do this but the reason we've done this is because of this and because of the concept and what we're trying to create for your users and how you want to use the space on a day-to-day basis Yeah. And I think that's something people could perhaps take to their own projects because as a design firm, you obviously start with a budget and you design kind of the dream, you know, you're like, this is what it'll look like. And you have some, a beautiful shelf with the lighting inside and wood interiors and gorgeous moldings on the outside. So it has to be, you know, elements of solid wood and all and high-end veneers and all of this. And then you know, somebody gets a price and they're like, oh, well, we were expecting it to be 30% mm-hmm. less than that. So mm-hmm. I think people mm-hmm. people could probably take that as an exercise to create your dream design and then l- have a look at it and see how you can downgrade parts of it to be different materials. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to necessarily forego the overall thing you wanted, but maybe, you know, you just do plain and inter- melamine interiors maybe the gables are, you know, in the melamine too. Maybe you only do the, the beautiful veneer interior, you know, on the exposed part of it, things like that. So rather yeah. than just thinking, oh, I can't afford bespoke joinery because it's a fortune and I'll just get this off the shelf. There's ways to create your dream and then edit around it with a good, with yeah. a good joiner. If you're like, okay, well, what would be the next step down from this? And same, mm. like you said, with silestones and countertops, almost anything you see in a home has, you know, three or four levels of finish, whether it's, yeah. you know, the laminate floor, the engineered floor, the hardwood floor, and they all have their pros and cons also in terms of wear and tear and longevity. So it's not necessary that most expensive is the best suited to you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like picking and choosing as well that, you know, where do you think are the focal, if, if we're talking about homes, you know, where are the focal points of your home? Where are the spaces that are more task driven versus, you know, an overall ambience that you want to create? And, you know, I, I'm not really into cooking. And yeah. when I say that, I say my, my lovely husband cooks everything in this house. <laughs> He's really into cooking. Well, I am not. I, I do the laundry. The tasks are split. But um, I, I'm really, really into clothes. And I'm like also a clothes hoarder. Not everything else nice is lovely and clean, but I'm, I am a clothes hoarder. <laughs> so I was kind of, we live in a very small cottage and all I kept thinking was, oh my gosh, where am I going to store all of these clothes? And we actually created, made our second bedroom into a walk-in. But like that, I was kind of going, okay, 
I'd love to create this really gorgeous, you know, really bougie walking closet. But the reality of it is, is that this is going to be upstairs. We're not going to actually be spending any time in here. So this is going to be about function. And what are the materials that we can use here to basically make it work as hard as physically possible and make it visually pleasing? But also, you know, we're not going to spend a huge amount of energy on this because the reality of it is that if you're going to sell it later on and you've spent all your money on a walk-in, on a kitchen, no person to buy it's going to come in and go, oh my God, that wardrobe is beautiful, but that kitchen, you know, they're, they, you know you, it's trying to get those priorities also in order. Yeah, completely. And I, I like that. So picking and choosing your focal points, task-driven versus ambience, finding your own, your own priorities. One other thing you talked about, so we talked quite a bit about what you learned at Henry J. Lyons in terms of the importance of joinery, value engineering, and snagging. But one thing you mentioned, which actually brings me back to the conversation I had with Steph, and I think it probably has to do with working in commercial and also at an, what is essentially an architectural firm with an interiors arm, and that is mm. spatial planning. That you said yeah. le- working in commercial and hospitality made you hyper aware of spatial planning, and that that's a really important crossover with residential. So tell me a little bit more about like how do you approach things that makes you very kind of spatial, which might differ from somebody else who doesn't have that background. Yeah, I mean to be honest, I think a huge starting point for that was that one of my um, best friends, her sister, is actually in a in a wheelchair, and I'd be very very close to them. And we went on a lot of holidays together. So we were always very aware that, you know, does this restaurant have accessibility, you know, or does it have a bathroom or, you know, are we going to be staying somewhere that, you know, has ramps or has a staircase? Mm. So I think without even realizing through my childhood, I kind of had that awareness. And then going into the practice, you know, you're crying, trying to create a space with, you know, universal access. And you want everyone with all various different kinds of um, disabilities to be able to navigate these spaces just as well as an able body and create making it visually pleasing at the same time. So that I always felt was hugely important. And when you're navigating a space, making sure that you have X amount of space between various different elements to create that lovely circulation path and create that lovely flow as you move through a building. And funnily enough, without even realizing that really came into our home because our home is very small, but yet when every single person comes in, they go, oh, it feels so spacious and it feels so roomy. And I definitely think it was the principles that I learned there that really, without even realizing, drove that. Mm. And um, even I've had clients, they kind of go, oh, that's like loads of space. And Mm. I kind of go, they kind of go, well, should we not fit a bit more in there? Or And I kind of go, yeah, no, we could. Absolutely. But I would prefer for you to actually live in it first and see mm. how it all feels kind of overcluttering this from yeah. day one. And again, that even goes back into the joinery as well as how much space do we actually need for these various different elements that we're building and how much counter space do we need and how is the geometry of all this going to work and with the furniture of okay you know each piece of furniture is going to take up x amount of space so when we're doing the planning what's going to be that space when we pull out this furniture behind or what's actually going to be the depth of that when it's pushed in how all of those elements are going to marry together so that it makes space feel very cohesive and makes it feel very considered I always say to clients, I like every piece to look like it's intentionally put there Mm. and, you know, kind of tailored to you in a bespoke way that when you walk in, 
everything feels like it's very very tailored to that space and I think with our own home someone was even saying to us if they were, we were renting would we leave the furniture because everything's been very very considered proportion wise for that space and I kind of go it's actually standard standard stuff it's just understanding actually the placement more than anything yeah. else yeah which everyone can do you know it's it's you know it's just taking that time I think to actually you know whether it's in your own home getting the masking tape and putting that across the floor and actually understanding you know for instance if you're buying a sofa and you've got a tight space don't buy something that has these huge bulky curvy arms that come out the side because you're actually going to be narrowing the actual seating in the middle mm. and you know buy something maybe that has a slender arm if you've got constraints on either side so that you can actually maximize that seating i i always like to give people the option to actually lie out on a sofa i i'm really tall i'm six foot so lot so being oh, on a wow. sofa and being squished and not being able to lie out is something that really personally bothers me especially yeah. if you're feeling poorly and you just don't want to be in your bed all day and you want to go on your sofa not being able to actually move and stretch out your legs is something that's you know very very annoying especially because furniture costs so much for people you want to be able to you know relax in it properly without feeling like you're kind of in this corner that you can't even stretch out properly it's very very annoying yeah I think those are all great tips. And um, I think if, if I'm remembering correctly, when you work on certain commercial spaces, you have to abide by accessibility regulations, right? Like certain spaces have to be made wheelchair accessible. Oh, absolutely. Everything, when you're in an insurance from day one, everything you do is with universal access in okay. mind. So we, and, and that is something that they that's hugely important, I think, to them as a company and hugely important and should be important to every designer. I would never want to get a reputation for excluding various different groups from, from the design. I want that the space to be enjoyed by everyone. And one element I think that that was particularly challenging was um, when I worked on the Institute of Dermatologists, um, gosh, I can't remember how many years ago, was that with the pandemic, I seem to have lost sense of time. <laughs> it was maybe three, three or four years ago. Um, but because it was a medical practice, you know, you're going to various different health issues walking into this space and different um, potentially disabilities. So we wanted to create a really, really calming space and make sure that it created that, you know, people coming into medical practices or hospitals or clinics are usually very worried or stressed out, mm-hmm. understandably. And we wanted to really create this lovely sets of self sense of calm when they walk into this area and make sure that it was achieving and ticking every single box so that you know anyone could come into this space I I remember even weeks prior to opening when they were you know posting pictures on social media to kind of you know show increase awareness they actually had numerous um, people contact them that were in wheelchairs and said I've never been able to go into a clinic because they're all um, these Georgian buildings that don't have wheelchair access so they were so excited to actually be able to go and see their doctor for whatever reason, because they never had that opportunity before. And that just really, um, that is like really hurt my soul, but that, you know, these people have been deprived for so long Yeah, and create a space that was just so inclusive to everyone was just so important. And I still have a really good relationship with that client to this day. So I think, I think something worked there and, clients you know very um kindly and generous and generously put a lot of trust in me to really create that for them and 
Steph was there at the very beginning when we started that. So I, I worked a lot with her when I was actually in the company and she was um she was so um lovely to work with. I really, really enjoyed working with her. But then the that project was one of my favorite projects I'd say to work on. I, I really liked working with the the builders on that team. There was it was a very collaborative exercise, which I think is so important. If you're not all on the same team, I think that it's very difficult for the project to mm. succeed. Yeah. And I think people encounter that a lot when it's their first experience renovating their home and it it works so differently to if you work in in a corporate space. So I Mm. I do actually want to get to to that and learning more about how you manage your own building team. But I, I wanted to come back to this universal access. Like what are some of those regulations? Like I know there's a wheelchair turning requirement and like the width of doors as well as the ramps. What are some of those standard dimensions that you need to abide by? Because I think those can be really helpful for people, like you were saying, to even plan into their home. And it was in my interview with Steph, we were talking about a similar topic, coincidentally. Um, she was talking about how good design for that good design actually encompasses a lot of the same principles as universal access, to not be able to bump into things, to be able to freely move through things. Um and it, it should just be a principle of good design as well as inclusive design. So do you know any of those dimensions off the top of your head? I know I've put you on the spot here. <laughs> um, well, for instance, if you're designing a reception desk, you have to be able to design it that it has, you know, you obviously want to be able to conceal, for instance, all the computers that are on mm. the receptionist mm-hmm. side, but you obviously want to drop the counter so that if someone is in a wheelchair, they can pull up either alongside it yeah. or it has a recess that they can actually wheel in underneath it. There, oh. There is an option. I know um, this is probably maybe going back five years ago where you could have reception desks, say at a hotel and someone in a wheelchair could check, could come in and they would, the receptionist would bring them over maybe to the seating area with an iPad and they would check them in that way. Yeah. But I think typically people are kind of trying to maybe move away from that now and incorporate that into the design of reception desks. So so with the reception desk and the same actually with the working desk, you kind of have a principle of, you know, a 750 uh, countertop height and that, which is, you know, standard height if you're working at a desk actually anyway, I think any desk ranges, I think typically from about or should from about 740 to um, maybe 760 millimeters. Mm -hmm. And then you also need to allow, you know, maybe about 1200, I would say behind that for the person that's at the desk, but also keeping in mind, they actually could have an employee that's a wheelchair user Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So it's creating that for them. And then, as you said, with the door widths, you have to have, you know, your door widths of, you know, eight, 900 mil anyway. And what I would always really recommend would be standard practice. And then you have your bathrooms, which would be, I think, uh, now I could be completely um, mistaking this now. I think they're about maybe 2,200 by two meters at least anyway. They kind of vary actually depending on whether it's going to be used as a wet room. Mm. So, and then they increase again. What was really interesting actually about the Temple Bar Hotel is that we weren't um, demolishing rooms, we were refitting them. So you're trying to create within these existing parameters as wheelchair accessible a bathroom as you can possibly get. But from the get-go, it's actually not meeting those building regulations. 
because it's slightly smaller. So that's kind of challenging actually at times is when you have an existing space, you know, if it's a protected structure or mm. not, like I, I worked on There's it. exemptions in that yeah, case. You exactly. don't have to, okay. Which is why there's all these medical practices in the Georgia yeah. buildings. Yeah. yeah. We, I worked on a, on a project with a colleague of mine where it was a period house near Marion square. And again, because so what's interesting with design is that if you're not altering the fabric of the building, if it, you know, not moving walls or anything like that, you're just changing the materials. There kind of is this loophole that you don't have to, everything doesn't have to comply with building regulations because it's just yeah. a materiality change. But mm-hmm. as soon as you knock a wall, it's, you know, game over then to an extent, yeah. you know, everything then has to apply for building regulations, which is correct, which is the right thing yeah. to do. But so when you're working, obviously, in a protected structure in a period house in Dublin, as we know, with all the conservation laws um, in Ireland, you can't change anything. So it's essentially a materiality change. And, you know, you might be able to put up a stud wall in between these hugely oversized rooms that are maybe you're not fit for purpose of what you're trying to achieve. But everything more or less is staying where you've put it and you're trying to then make the most out of every one of those spaces and make it accessible as possible. But also keeping in mind that from the get-go, it's not going to achieve that A standard that you wanted to, because yeah. it can't. It's 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 not physically possible. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a compromise there. Um, yeah. And actually, I think that's a perfect segue talking about protected structures to take some of these principles that you learned and uh, your kind of slippery slide towards working for yourself <laughs> in residential. So tell us a little bit more about what you were looking for in a home. I think people are always curious to know, like, what do people who work in the industry look for? Like, what's a good house versus a bad house? How do you see the good bones of something? And um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Because I think it's interesting what you shared with me before our interview about what you were originally looking for with your partner for the house and what you ended up doing. Because I think that can help people maybe look at their property search differently. Yeah. So basically what happened to us is that, as I said previously, you know, we got our mortgage approval, I think on the 13th of March in 2020. And sorry, the only reason I know that specific date is because, <laughs> uh, because I, uh, my birthday was that week and I got engaged that week. So that's the only reason I remember <laughs> that I, I was I'm sitting on the train with the laptop, you know, there were, I think there were five cases in Ireland at the time, but everyone was in, you know, panic stations. And, you know, I was kind of going, this is amazing. And we got the exemption for what we wanted. And we were, and we're both from Wicklow. And there were a lot of new builds being built in the, in the town where I was from. So we were kind of going, this is absolutely amazing. You know, I, we couldn't have hoped for better. And then two days later, the whole country shut down. And, you know, we all put, we all stayed at home on our best behaviors as was to be expected. And we got a call from our mortgage broker four weeks later to say, you know, very, very sorry, but the banks are all panicking because no one knows what's coming around the corner. So they've pulled everyone's exemptions. And we kind of went, okay, so this kind of changes everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, this, this basically means that everything we were kind of originally looking at is no longer an option. My husband grew up in a very old property like myself, and he kind of had the this thing of you know old houses are cold and you know they just they're such a labor of love and mold and all these sort of he had all these kind of ideas that you know no I don't I want to get a new build I just don't want to have to worry about any of this stuff that's going to be um issues for us and I because of the house I grew up in I always loved period homes but yeah. I was all right I was really open to getting a new build as well I kind of always had the mindset my parents moved a few times that wherever we moved to was never going to be our forever home mm-hmm. and 
think so many people get bogged down in that of it, you know, fitting a specific right criteria. Does it have X amount of bedrooms? Does it have X amount of bathrooms? Does it have a driveway? And unless it's, they stick very rigidly to that. And if it doesn't yeah. have that, then it's just not a contender. Um, which I, which really breaks my heart actually for people because then they don't, they can't actually even appreciate the building and the potential that they go into because it's not ticking all those boxes for yeah. them. And they don't it's see the It's also just unrealistic in today's market. Like, it it breaks my heart when someone's like, no, I, I want a house. I won't live in an apartment. Like mm. it has to be a house. And you're like, why? Mm. They're, and they're like, well, and it has to be in this area. And you're like, yeah. well, you, you can't have it all. Oh. Absolutely. I mean, if I was a multimillionaire, absolutely. Like, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we all, we all live in the, in the real world to an extent anyway. And, yeah. Um, I, so we, we, bait, we, we kind of decided, okay, well, we're just not going to move on anything. You know, the world's very uncertain at this time. And um, then, you know, a couple of months rolled by and um, we were living in my parents' house at the time and they were um, living abroad. And then one day I would just um, opened up my junk mail. I never opened my junk mail, funnily enough. I'm one of those terrible people that never opens up their junk mail. But this ad for this house um, in the next town where my husband's from came up and I mean, it wasn't like I opened up this ad on Daft and went, oh my God, this is beautiful. I mean, it wasn't at all. Yeah. But for some reason, I just kind of went, hmm, don't know why, but I'm compelled to go see this. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I, you I, know what? Everyone, sorry to interrupt you, but I just have to make this no, no. point. Everyone who talks about their journey buying a house, they all have this kind of like kinetic connection to the house they end up choosing that they can't explain. Like, yeah there's an attraction and an emotional connection. So I think people shouldn't ignore that even if it doesn't meet all their criteria. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, I always say to people, actually the time to actually view a house is when the weather is absolutely awful because, you know, Mm. houses can look so beautiful when the sun is shining and, you know, it's a lovely, glorious day, but actually (laughs) seeing a house when it's, you know, blustery and windy outside, you know, you're kind of seeing it at its worst to an extent but and funnily enough, the day that when we went to view the house, even though it was June, it was, you know, 14 degrees out and it was windy and rainy. And we came in to see it and the whole back wall in the kitchen was completely covered in black mold. Oh. And the, the wall in the in the air in the room that I'm in now, which was the third bedroom, the back wall was actually crumbling in your hand to the touch. And you could tell that the previous owner to sell it had just put down new carpets, which I think is actually a big tactic, actually, when you're selling house people, rather mm. than doing it as a work, they'll just put down fresh carpet. And we, we looked around and you could tell, you know, it was kind of, you know, 50 years of layers and layers of paint on walls. And the original house was about 160 years old, which had no plumbing whatsoever. And our house is a protected structure, so you can't obviously alter anything inside structurally. And then at the back of the house, because all the rooms interconnect because it's a cottage, was a 1970s extension. And that's where all the black mold was. Of course. And like a fiberglass roof. And it was just, it just needed like a lot, a lot of love. And I think, you know, the previous owner, you know, probably moved in with the best intentions. And then one weekend, I think freaked out and was like, no, no, this is a much bigger project than possibly I anticipated Mm-hmm. And we were very lucky that because we were living in my parents' house at the time that we weren't renting and we kind of went, you know, we, we can do this and still have somewhere to live and continue to save. 
And the house was a three bedroom at the time. And whenever I tell anyone this, they kind of are a bit shocked because Ireland's obsessed with how many bedrooms do you have? <laughs> We, we turned it from a three bed into a one bed. And the reason we did that was because we both felt that our families live locally. The chances of us ever using a guest room would basically be like maybe once, twice a year. And yeah. we just felt such a waste for us personally to just use that room as a guest room. And then we thought it would just end up being a room where you toss clothes into or the clothes horse ends up being in. And Always. It's a smaller property, we have to maximize everything. And how do we actually live on a day to day basis as well? You know, people were saying to me, How are you going to go from your parents, you know, lovely and um, big house into a little college? You're really going to feel it there, you know, downsizing. And we kind of went, Well, no, actually, because we use a kitchen in their house. We use the kitchen in this house. We use, use a living room in their house. We use the same bathroom and the same bedrooms. You don't need three sitting rooms. (laughs) Yeah. So actually, it's not really going to make any difference to us. And it was true. It didn't actually, um, it didn't do anything. And in a way, you kind of actually felt like, oh, my God, you suddenly have so much more space. Because when you're living at home, all your stuff is packed into your, you know, your childhood bedroom. So, I mean, (laughs) oh, my God. Um, So, because I only rented when I was about 20, 21. And then I moved home and my um, husband never lived at a home. So we were buying everything oh, wow. first time. Okay. And but we 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 bought the the place anyway. And I think people all kind of thought, yeah, sure you can live in it the way it is. I mean, you know, it's not your forever home. Why would you be sinking loads of money now into that? And you know, that you know very interesting people. mindset, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was probably terrible in a sense that I kind of went, absolutely not. No. <laughs> I just went. If I'm going to really love living here, I really want to put all my energy into this house because I know in my heart of hearts that if I don't, I'm going to be on daft in a year's time on my home, looking at other places to move because it's not exactly the way I want it to be. And you would know yourself when you're a designer, an architect or an interior architect, it's such an occupational hazard that you're constantly looking at your home and going, how can I improve this? My, my poor husband, every other week, he's just like, oh, whenever I go into him and say, I've been thinking, he kind of goes, oh, God, <laughs> <laughs> the three deadly words. Um, but so and also I was very worried that we were in the height of the pandemic and we didn't know when we were coming out of that. So we were going to yeah. be home all the time. And I think residential design really skyrocketed to an extent during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. you know, people were really starting to think oh, will we redo our kitchen? Will we do um, redo our garden or our bathroom? And they were really starting to invest their money actually into their homes because they suddenly realized when they were gone 12 hours a day, they were suddenly there 24-7 and everything around them was bothering them to an extent. Yeah. So they started to see things like a designer always does. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And also if they were living in actually an open plan home and they had children, they suddenly realized the open plan living actually wasn't working for them because yeah. how were they, you know, that if one person was on a call, the other person had to leave the room or they weren't getting any time and separation if they had small children to just, you know, take a moment to breathe. So I yeah. think that actually put open plan living almost to extend into question for people, which was really interesting because I think for a long time prior to that, Ireland was kind of going, break down all these walls, make all of this really airy and, you know, very cohesive, which, you know, looks absolutely beautiful and works for a lot of things. But I think when the pandemic happened, people started to really rethink how they actually wanted to use their homes. So on that point and on creating open plan versus, you know, 
breaking up zones. When you looked at the cottage and the way it was currently laid out, I know you turned it from a three bedroom into a one bed, but did you have an idea of how extensive the works were going to be and what it was going to cost you because you worked in the industry or because of you working in commercial? Was there still a lot for you to learn as you took it on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I think I really realized actually doing my own house how much there were actually discrepancies between the two. For instance, when I was even designing the the kitchen, we had actually, um, we we took on um, uh, builders that, you know, there was a family business and one of the sons, excuse me, had a background in um, carpentry and joinery. So he was going to do all the joinery. And I thought this is fantastic because I'm not going to be dealing with them, you know, as a a serious amount of electricians. And so it's all going to be in one family, which really simplifies things for me and makes things a lot easier. And he very, very um, kindly was kind of just open to me, literally designing everything, and he would just build it all for me. And when I was designing the kitchen, I was kind of going, no, 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 you can't, you can't have the counters that high. The counters need to be um, A50, and, you know, for, for building regs. And he was going, no, that's only really a commercial thing. That doesn't actually really apply to residential. Residential <laughs> would be typically um, 900 to 950. Yeah. And I was going oh my gosh, this just goes against my like eight years, you know, plus and then college of training. I just like this, <laughs> like these little kind of things were just very, very um, challenging at the beginning. And then he was kind of going, you know, you also have to remember you're not in this huge open plan space for a commercial, but you're in a cottage. So to an extent, you're going to have to throw out those building regulations. Yeah, um, yeah. So in a protected structure, so we can't move anything. With our house, um, with the kitchen that was um interesting but then what really helped with my commercial background is I learned I knew from the get-go how big every piece of item was going to be and how much room that was going to take up so very um was very very good because when the kitchen actually went to be built there were no issues it literally was just a complete install from my drawings and there was nothing like this unit's actually going to be too big for this area and you know our our kitchen doubles up as a utility and I would never typically advise anyone to put your utility in the kitchen but what people have to understand is that the kitchen in this house is in the extension and there's no plumbing in the mm. original structure for the house is two story so we didn't really have a choice so what it would have meant did was- re- replumbing the entire house right it would have been cost prohibitive yeah, we one, we didn't actually have the, the budget to bring plumbing into the original structure, but two, would yeah. have meant opening up walls again, which we yeah. weren't able to do. We we actually only knocked one wall, and the only reason we were actually even able to do that was because we were getting an architect actually to sign off to say that it improved the overall integrity of the mm. home. And I don't actually even think it was an original wall, um, yeah. the, the structure, but kind of gave us an indication that it, someone had just put it up in the 70s. So... That was a huge um, element, but the utility we've designed it in a way that it actually houses the same, if not more, of other people's actual utility rooms, which is which is really really um which is really great. People are always really shocked to find out how much that that kind of self-contained unit actually holds. And then when you're dealing with an old building, you know, there's always these kind of nooks and crannies of just kind of little alcoves and stuff. So we yeah. tried to kind of pop joinery into there and I always think vertical space is so important when you're dealing with a small area you know people a lot of time will store things on the floor in a cupboard and I always say to them you know if it's like a mop and a hoover but look at all that empty space you have above that you know what Mm. can you do with that really maximize this for you and that I really tried to push that with this house of really trying to use all of the walls in every single area 
and um, which you have to do when you have a small space you know you don't have the luxury of just spacing things out and when you're living in a smaller space you have to almost design it in such a way that everything when it's contained how that also looks because if it looks cluttered when it's all tidied and kind of put away it's not really going to work mm-hmm. so you want it to feel very clean when everything is put away that it doesn't feel heavy you know that that's so important as well and I'd be a huge um hugely into maybe not doing loads of overhead cupboards because I think that kind of makes the space almost close in on you to an extent so if you're so in open shelving or like full height units instead yeah exactly I, I think yeah. open shelving is a lovely way to break up the space and again it just draws that eye up really nicely yeah. and also, you know, people spend so many years, you know, collecting various different bits and pieces for kitchens in particular. So it's lovely to be able to show those things off as well. If you're a homemaker or you're really into cooking, um, I'm not particularly in, into cooking myself, but, um, but even for my husband, I was really trying to keep him in mind of how he actually uses a kitchen and how he cooks and where everything was going to be placed to make it as user-friendly for him as possible. You know, all of our spices are stored in a cupboard you know right next to the hob all of the canned goods and um you know oils everything are also then stored on the left hand side of the hob the cutlery and all the plates are stored right next to the dishwasher so for when you're loading and unloading that you're not traipsing across to the other side of the kitchen so and then even with your fridge you know your fridge isn't going to run up to 2.5 meters so what are you going to do all that space above so let's mm-hmm. use that space and all those appliances that you don't need access to every day. So whether that's a slow cooker or a George Foreman or a Wayne Scales, to put everything away. You know, a lot of people grow up with every single appliance on the counter. And I just hate the busyness of that. I'm always have yeah. this strict rule that it should only be a coffee maker, a kettle, and maybe a toaster, depending how often you, yeah. <laughs> you toast bread. Agreed. <laughs> we're that kind of household that has bread every single day. So, of course, our toaster is out. But you want to make it as clean as possible because even just from a cleaning perspective, it's just much yeah. easier for you on a day-to-day basis, especially if you're working from home. It's very easy for things to get out of hand and get messy very, very quickly. Yeah. And I think, so you've said a few things that I want to pull out there. So because you weren't changing a lot of the structure of the house, which a lot of people, whether it's a listed property or not, sometimes that's what they have to do to save money. And you knew the sizes of everything and you knew the space that you needed between objects, probably informed from your universal access training. So would you be kind of recommending people to leave around like a meter of passage space between furniture and kind of in corridors? Or would you would you want more ideally? Ideally, I mean, you'd have a minimum of twelve hundred. Twelve hundred any corridor but I you know if you have to come down by 200 mil to a thousand it's not really the end of the world it, I think it okay. hugely depends on the scale of the build when you're in a cottage you can get away with slightly tighter spaces sure um, but, but in our house we don't really actually have a hallway you kind of come in off this little um, porch essentially into the living space and I've very clearly kind of designated you know the, the right hand side is our kind of multifunction space, which operates as my home office and library. And then the other side is the living space because I have this ultimate pet peeve when people come into a house and they have a sofa and their passageway or their corridor is between the sofa and the TV and they have to walk in between that to get to someone's mm. kitchen. I just, that I, I that is one of my biggest pet peeves with the project when people have that because 
it doesn't really make sense to me. I, I would try to create it in such a way that that corridor can be created behind all your furniture so that you're not disturbing the person that's using that yeah. space, you know? Yeah. And it, cause it, it just, it doesn't create this really cozy area to me that I want to hang out in. If I have people walking in front of me the whole time, why, why would I want to hang out there? And it's just so disruptive. And I'm going to be pausing in the TV the entire time if I'm watching it, or I'm not going to be sitting there with a cozy book reading because I'm just going to have this background noise the whole time yeah. distracting. Yeah, really you know, differentiating so, the the zones and like yeah, hugely, it's so hugely important, I think. And, and I think I mean, people are scared of floating furniture. I, I see that all the oh, time. Yeah. People only think the only places to put furniture is against walls, which would create what you've just mentioned. But if you put the sofa with its back to that corridor and you walk oh, past the back of a sofa, then that's fine. Then that person is oh, watching really? TV, uh, yeah. and you're. And it, that's created its own zone. Um, and I think, again, if you're thinking of these rules of like a thousand to twelve hundred millimeters around a space, and you just even draw on a piece of paper, try to figure out the scale of a block of a kitchen unit, six hundred depth, and you know, six hundred wide for each. You know, you start getting an idea of all your white goods and how that fits in. And if you just learn the space that you need between a piece of furniture and the average size of a sofa, a table, a counter unit in a kitchen, there's actually not that many options <laughs> unless you're bringing down walls. Yeah. And it's, what's interesting as well is that I, I even was on a, a consultation the other week and she was saying to me, God, 1200 for a couch seems really, really deep. We're not going to have that much space in between for our coffee table. And I was going Yes, you will. We're going to have, you know, like 1800 here. That's, en that's enormous. Mm. And I said, also, I said, you know, if we place this coffee table more than, you know, 450 between the edge of the sofa and the coffee table, you're not going to use that coffee table. Yeah. Like you have to be able to lean over yeah. without your yeah. butt leaving the seat and, and pick okay. something well, up. Yeah, we're going to end up either getting nested tables or if your sofa is against a wall, more often than not, people for some reason always put their sofas in front of radiators and you're going to end up using that radiator behind you to lay down your cup of coffee or your wine glass on. <laughs> so uh, I've seen it happen so many times. So I think it's also understanding that actually you don't need that much space between those two elements and actually the, it makes it actually connect together so much better. Yeah, yeah. I think creating that circle, I see so often in tv you know lounge spaces where people have you know the three piece it's all the boys the three piece you know furniture set um which i just i that, that also is a big pet peeve of mine <laughs> um but where people have you know the tv is in one position and then say you have an armchair next to that and a sofa and to me there should always be this circle of conversation in a mm -hmm. living space yeah. you know there you i think it doesn't create um, I love a really nice conversational setting if you're always kind of having to talk to someone almost at an angle I think if you can create it in such a way that whether that's through poofs or ottomans or you know armchairs items of furniture that can be moved right you can really create this lovely conversation around a coffee yeah. table to flexibility in a space yeah. so it's not Absolutely. just a tv room but it can be yeah. a, a space to hang out if you have friends over yeah. for dinner before you sit at the table yeah, like more often than not, you if you're over in someone's house, you'll know, like they might have, you know, room for two to three people on a sofa, one person in an armchair, and then there's like three people standing in front of them. And yeah. I always, with this, the level of heights there, it just kind of, the conversation doesn't seem to flow as well. 
Whereas I actually think, you know, things even like swivel furniture have become hugely mm. popular in recent years. And I think that that's actually made a huge difference because people now actually have the option to actually turn around and be more inclusive in the conversation. Because, you know, we all obviously watch TV in our TV rooms, but more often than not, the TV room is where you're actually sitting down and relaxing with your family or with your friend or with your partner and having that conversation and making that really lovely, intimate space for you to relax in. Where the if you place your furniture in such a way that the conversation just flows much more at an ease. Yeah, right, 100%. <laughs> no, no, I agree completely. And I think one of the messages I'm getting from you is to actually simplify simplify tidy away use bespoke joinery to take advantage of space to take a to take away clutter and consider some key principles like i mean if you google distance between a sofa and a and a coffee table distance you need to pull out a chair you like the average person can can figure out very easily then what can fit in a space and buy things proportionally and plan a kitchen in a way that it makes sense and it's all about really having those things guide you before you throw in all the kind of stylistic elements and the loose furniture, right? Absolutely. And even things like the amount of people that say to me that they need even a six person dining table. And I said, why? There's two of you. Yeah. A lot of people come over and I say, yes, what if people come over? But the reality of it is, are you really into cooking and do you like entertaining? Mm. And if you do, and you have a smaller space, why don't we get a four-person dining table with an extendable leaf? Yeah. Because this is going to take up a huge amount of space that I would prefer to give back to the circulation so that your area doesn't feel cluttered. And it'll work for you on an everyday basis. We can get stackable chairs that are still really beautiful. You have this huge attic upstairs. So (laughs) for those four times a year, we bring down those chairs from the attic or from the spare room or whatever. And we make this into a lovely six-person dining table. But for everyday use, it doesn't make sense. And I think Irish people get really bogged down in the what-ifs the home needs to have, the what-ifs. And I think the way we live is a huge example of the, okay, it might not work for maybe the three times a year that we'd love to have someone to say, but it works for those other 363 days of the year really, really well. And what's more important? Like to me, the those three hundred and sixty three days are so much more important than the what if a cousin from the UK comes to stay. I say to them, "You can stay at my mum. She's five minutes down the road." Yeah, <laughs> or, and it's also people get obsessed. Like you were talking about turning your three bed into a one bed for the way you live and being realistic about the way you live. Like I need a proper dressing room. I'm not going to lie to mm-hmm. myself that this other room is going to be really valuable when you go to resell something. But rather thinking, this isn't my forever home. I'm already improving the value of this house for somebody who's looking for the same thing in a future given point in time. And you have all this storage instead that allows you to live more clutter-free, more calmly. So really knowing how do you build for them now rather than, the like you said, the what-ifs and this idealized version of like, oh, well, the house won't sell for as much if it's not a three-bed. But like, who wants to live in as cluttered a three bed? Like, I think people's perceptions of what they want are also changing. So those are the people buying. Yeah. And like, you know, tomorrow isn't promised. Do you know what I mean? We're all so grateful to be here. So you're, you you can plan and plan and plan. But, you know, I think that the pandemic has told us anything is that you can't plan for everything. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, create a home for what's, got, you know, future proof it. Absolutely. You know, you don't want to create something that isn't going to age well and that you're going to hate and isn't going to be fit for purpose. But don't be creating for every single, you know, possibility because, the re- because you know, the reality of it is that you won't enjoy the home and its full potential in my in my view because you'll be so scared of the resale value and i mean we know i mean there's no reason why someone couldn't come in and buy our house and just put back up the stud wall like that's, exactly. that's not very it's so simple mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and like take like we we designed our walk-in in a way that if they want to take out the wardrobes and do that they can turn that back into the second bedroom you know there's all ways around things it's just being able to take that step back when you go to view and just not get put off by something immediate because it isn't that exact 100 percent. you know there, there's very few people that go into a house and go everything's absolutely perfect and i won't change things yeah. you know everything has very very specific so i mean you're very lucky if you have the opportunity to do that but my mum used to always say to me when i was small that if they went her and my dad went to go view a house he'd prefer for it to be in really bad condition because if it's actually in really good condition, it's hard to justify changing things. Yeah. Where if it's pretty bad condition, you actually need to. Anyway. Yeah. And then so you're also undoing. And then you're also undoing things like that 70s extension. Sometimes it's better if something's naked and bare and honest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you move into a house and they say, and you know, that that turnkey, I, I sometimes <laughs> that, that, that term really frustrates me because I'm always kind of going turnkey to who? Turkey yeah. to who? A hundred percent. Yeah. But well, no, I, I I, we could think. we could go down a million other rabbit holes um, about your cottage and everything. But I think it would be great for people to check out your Instagram now that you've left Henry J. Lyons and, and founded your own firm. So people can follow along at Jennifer and Interiors. And that's and a double N E. Um, cause I was going through that ahead of our interview, looking at your, your floor plans, looking at the mood boards, looking at your progress things. And I think that's a great way for people to see what you, what you can make of a small space and what you can do when you reclaim rooms for, for daily use. Um, so thank you so much for walking us through your career, everything from spatial planning, taking into account universal access, the importance of joinery, the way you can value engineer things to fit into a budget, just like you did with your cottage and uh, putting a lot of these principles into play and creating a really sleek, classical, contemporary space with your cottage. So I don't know if there's any other final learnings or words you want to share with people who are considering buying a fixer upper, who are considering renovating their space and what they can take away from our conversation today. Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing is try not to get bogged down or stressed by, you know, it's a, you know, we are in the middle of a housing crisis. It can be incredibly overwhelming, but, you know, a lot of designers are more than happy, you know, to give people their time for, you know, you might only need an hour, you know, pay that designer or whoever it is, you know, that hundred euro an hour and it'll just save you so much stress to just kind of go through, talk through ideas with someone and, you know, discuss what the possibilities may be. And, you know, I always say you can change your home, but you can't change your address. It's very, Mm -hmm. very like, so try to always remember that the house might not be absolutely perfect the way you want it, but that's okay. That's, that's, that's more than okay. And in fact, that's actually better because we can make it the way you want it and the way that's going to work for you and your lifestyle. Amazing. 
Great. Thank you so much, Jenny, for your time. And again, you can follow along um, and learn more about Jenny's interior design services at Jennifer and Interiors on Instagram. And I assume you have a website as well. I do. The website is actually getting updated next month. It's kind of operating as an inverted commas landing page at the moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, it's getting so we'll send them to Instagram then. Yes, I think. Um, but, the, <laughs> but the page is there. So feel free to reach out on either. But thank you so much for having me, Tanya. It's been so lovely to talk to you this morning. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for tuning in to the Interiors Podcast. To learn more about our guests or anything we mentioned today, please refer back to the show notes. You can also follow along with us on Instagram at The Interiors Podcast or on my Instagram account, Tanya Neufeld Flanagan. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please subscribe, follow, leave a review, and share the podcast with friends and family. Thank you so much and see you here next time.